This is God's word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And so it was. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit, bearing, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let, there be, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to get light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the midst, sorry, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which this water swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 1. As we read this morning, we'll look from the beginning of Genesis 1 all the way to the first three verses of chapter 2. First three verses of chapter, first two verses of chapter 1 provide sort of a heading and introduction to the creation account and then wrapping it up chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 provide a very neat conclusion it's really unfortunate that the chapter division happens right there because chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 really belong with the rest of chapter 1 the creation account now saint augustine theologian from the 300s he once said in the form of a prayer about the creation account Let me hear and understand the meaning of the words, In the beginning, you made heaven and earth. Moses wrote these words. He is no longer here, and I cannot see him. Augustine was a bright dude. Um, But if he were here, Augustine said, I would lay hold of him, and in your name I would beg and beseech him to explain those words to me. I would be all ears to catch the sounds that fell from his lips. And I totally agree with Augustine here. I hope you come to a passage like this and, and feel like we're walking on holy ground here. This is a very humbling passage, the creation of the universe. Now, as I was initially preparing some months ago to preach through Genesis, I expected to come to this sermon ready to help you navigate all of the various interpretations and views related to the age of the earth, the relationship between science and the Bible, science and Genesis, and, and, you know, the interpretation of the days, or whenever we see day, is this a 24-hour time period, or is something else happening here? I was, I, I figured that's what we would be discussing today, but now that we're here, I've come to the conclusion that as important as those various issues are, diving into them may cause us to miss the forest for the trees. And and the last thing I want us to do is to miss the clear points in Genesis 1 and 2 by diving into these important but side issues. Now, I'm taking this route because my approach to preaching any text of the Bible is to try to understand it in its original Context. I want to understand the biblical author as he would wish to be understood. I want to see and show you the intent of the biblical author. Only then can we understand the meaning of a passage. And I admit, this is really difficult. It's, it's a difficult task, especially when you come to a passage like Genesis. Genesis, Genesis was, was written some 3,500 years ago i i I mean so to to dig out the original intent here is is maybe more difficult than you would you would give credit but what i can say here is that i don't believe moses's purpose in writing genesis 1 and 2 this creation account was to show us when god created the heavens and the earth or how long it took him 
I, I just don't think that that's the point. I, and I really don't believe that Moses was trying to offer us a word of defense against scientific theories that didn't even exist until about 250 years ago. It just wasn't in Moses' mind. That's not why he wrote it. It's not to say that Genesis 1 doesn't say anything about these things. It's just not the main point. Here's what I believe, though. I do believe Moses wants us to understand something about God in Genesis 1. That much is clear. God's name, his activity, his sovereignty, his power, his joy are all over Genesis 1. I mean, as Lucas was, was reading, did you pick up on the amount of the word God? Like, did you hear how many times he said just God? His name alone is mentioned 35 times in the 34 verses that we read. Now, here's the question. Why is this creation account, the, the, the Judeo-Christian, the Genesis creation account, more about the creator than about the creation? And honestly, when you think about it, there is so much more that could have been said about the creation. I mean, it was a long passage that we just read, but there's a lot that was left out. There, we, we're left with a lot of questions. In fact, a lot of the controversies, a lot of the debates about Genesis 1 have to do with the fact that Moses did not go into some of these details we wish he would have gone into. He doesn't talk about creation that much. That's why Augustine dreamed of being able to sit with Moses and ask him questions. But he outlined the creation account very carefully. He wanted to establish a very clear relationship between God and creation. He emphasizes right here from the beginning that God is distinct from and he is sovereign over his creation. And the reason that we can, we can know this is because we do, the, we do the work of looking at the historical context, and we know that this creation story is in direct opposition to the creation stories of other civil, civilizations of the day. Here's just one example. Most ancient Near Eastern religions believed in and celebrated gods of sun and moon. Okay, they believed that the sun and the moon were not just creations of the gods, but that they themselves were gods. But here in Genesis 1, I hope you picked up on it, Moses doesn't even name the sun and the moon. Did you pick up on that? God's name is mentioned 35 times, and the sun and the moon are not even mentioned once. He references them, but on, on day one of creation, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, the sun and the moon didn't even exist. So light itself is not even dependent on the sun or the moon. But, but then when you get to day four of creation, when God did create the sun and the moon, we're not even given their names. Moses simply writes, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, which would have been such a jab at these other religions, these other civilizations of the day. Here's the point. Genesis 1 is far more about the creator than it is about the creation. We come with all these questions about the creation, but Genesis 1, Moses is letting us know here, this chapter and the first three verses of chapter 2 are all about God. So I want to keep it really simple for you this morning. I just want to focus on two actions of God that we find in this passage, just two. And again, they're really simple. The first, action number one, 
God created. God created. That, that takes up all of Genesis chapter 1. God created. And then action number 2, which is just three verses long in chapter 2, is God rested. So two actions from God we're going to think about this morning. God created and God rested. Okay, first, God created. Now, God didn't just create generally. What we'll say here is that God created everything out of nothing by his powerful word and for his glory. God created everything out of nothing by his powerful word and for his glory. So that covers the what, the how, and the why of creation. Let's, let's walk through each of these. So first, the what. What did God create? And again, I'm going to blow your minds here. You ready? God created everything that's not God. All right? Everything in existence that's not God is a creation of God. God is the creator of all things. Now, instead of walking tediously through each day of creation, I want us to kind of zoom out and look at the big picture. The six days of creation divide very neatly. It's a very organized uh, 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 account. They, they divide very neatly into two groups of three days. The creation, the creation account basically provides us with two groups of three days. Now, these two groups of three refer to the forming and filling of the earth, which, if you remember from verse 2 in chapter 1, the earth was initially formless and empty. It, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The earth's formlessness was solved by its forming in days 1 to 3. So in days 1 to 3, what's created? Light, sky, and waters, and then day 3, land and plants. Okay, so this is a, this is a forming. This is setting the environment. And then from days 4 to 6, we have the filling of, of the earth. So uh, we have day 4, the sun, the moon, the stars. Are, are, they fill the sky. We have day five, the birds and the fish that fill the sky and fill the seas. And then you have day six, animals and humans are created to, to fill the land. So there's this remarkable correspondence, if, if you look carefully at Genesis 1, between the first three days and the last three days of creation. Days one to three form each environment, and days four to six fill it accordingly. Day one, light. Day four, corresponds to it. There's, there's sun, there's moon, there's stars. Day two, there's sky and sea. Day five corresponds to it. There's birds that fill the sky. There's fish that fill the sea. Day three, land is formed. And then day six, animals and, and humans, they, they fill it. So what did God create? God created everything. He formed a formless world and he filled an empty world. Now, second question, how did he do it? Now, this, this is really important. This is really important. How did God create? There is such beautiful and captivating simplicity in the creation of the world from a Christian worldview. It's, it's strikingly ordinary. And to be honest, not very exciting. It, it's, it's almost boring when you read the story. Okay, there, there are no intricate or complicated processes 
On the surface, the world's creation is unassuming. It's even underwhelming. You know know what I mean? I mean, look at it. Verse 3. I mean, it's nothing but darkness. And then we just have this casual phrase here. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Okay, moving on. You know? It's, It's so casual. Now, I'm actually, just try not to judge me here. I'm sort of attracted to those mythical creation stories, you know? Um, For example, from the movie Moana. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Moana. It's uh, heavy judgment coming. I I feel it, okay? So so the movie Moana, um, there's this this little gemstone-like type thing. And that gemstone harnesses, it possesses the power of creation, so the power of creation is in this like shining, like it makes this woo 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 sound, you know, whenever whenever you see it, and and it's just it's kind of cool, you know, like the power of creation's in this little gemstone, and there's this there's this God in the movie who who creates, but he he doesn't create by speaking, he creates by lassoing the sun, and he creates by stealing fire from the underworld, and and a lot of the mythical ancient Near Eastern creation stories are similar to this it's the gods that are doing all of these things and they're they're kind of exciting you know they're they're interesting they're they're super creative now honestly we really have no idea what it actually looked like when god created the heavens and the earth i mean we can say god spoke and it happened but what i mean what does that look like you know none of us were there nobody was there except god so we we really don't know um but what we do know is probably more startling and uncomfortable than than you might like to admit god is so awesome in power so perfect in wisdom so so mighty in his will that his very desires for the world are spoken out of thin air and then they come to pass he desires something he speaks that desire and it happens All God has to do to create something as grand as the galaxies, as vast as the oceans, is to want it to exist. And then he can make it exist by telling it to exist. (laughs) I mean, this is the God that we worship. Y'all, this is, it's, it's nearly unbelievable. Now, there are two parts to the how of creation. The first part is that God created everything out of nothing. All right? So God created everything with no starting materials. No no pre-existing materials at all. Just there's God, nothing else. God speaks something else. But he but he had no starting materials, no gemstones, you know, that that harness the power of creation. Hebrews 11:3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It was made out of nothing. Okay? So that's the first part. God created everything out of nothing. But second, God created everything by speaking, by the power of his word. The psalmist in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Uh, One thing you need to notice here is how easy God had it in creating the world it was so easy for him there's no intricate process there's there's no lengthy description of what he had to go through in order to make everything it was so easy 
He, he creates all that the eye can see and more, and it's, it, it's, it's easy for him. I mean, how casual Moses records it. And God said, and it was so. God just said for something to exist, and it came into existence. C.S. Lewis, he, he captured God's ease in creation in, in the Chronicles of Narnia when he, when he speaks of Aslan creating the universe. And Aslan creates through song. He, he creates by opening his mouth and singing. And, and Lewis, he, he describes this creation as Aslan opening his mouth and then he starts to sing and then he says the color green just begins to form around his feet and then it spreads out into a pool and just continues to spread and then there are birds and there are flowers that that come from this and it's all just from the song that comes from Aslan's mouth there is joy and there is ease in creation so so God doesn't just say you know, hey, I'm going to go make some light, and then he goes over here and makes some light. God just says, let there be light, and there is light. Now, our response to a God who creates in this way must be awe and worship. That's, that's the only proper response. Psalm 33 again, let all the earth fear the Lord. If there is anyone that you should stand in fear of. If there's anyone you should worship or stand before in awe, it is a God who can literally just want something to happen, tell it to happen, and it happens. Psalm 33 goes, the psalmist goes on to say, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God created everything out of nothing by the power of his word. But why did he do it? We talked about this a little bit last week, that the Lord created the heavens and the earth for his own glory. But I want to expound on that a little bit this week. All of creation, every aspect of creation, possesses the capacity to glorify God. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever thought about it this way, but here, here's how it works. Nature... It's beautiful, okay? You know, pick your poison. The, the, the mountains, the, the ocean, the, the stars, what, what, whatever it is, whatever you want to think of, whatever your favorite place on earth is, it is moving and it is, it is beautiful. And the reason that it is so beautiful is because all of creation is essentially singing a song to the Lord, okay? Whether it's the winds at the beach that that sing the Lord's song, or it's, you know, birds in the forest that are singing the Lord's song, or, you know, on my back porch, the, sometimes this is annoying, actually, it's probably not the best illustration, but, you know, the crickets, you know, the crickets and the cicadas, and, you know, it's kind of pretty sometimes, it's all right, um, but they're singing the Lord's song, and it, it's beautiful, and the views are breathtaking, and, and really, there's only one part of God's entire creation that isn't mostly beautiful and moving, and it's humanity, Really, the only reason for that is because every other aspect of creation glorifies God, and we often don't. We often don't glorify God, but, but creation does. Why? Well, first, you see it all over Genesis 1. Creation sings the Lord's song, and it glorifies the Lord because it possesses the Lord's blessing. Over and over again throughout Genesis 1, the refrain is repeated, and God saw that it was good. 
God saw that it was good, and the Lord blessed it. And so all of creation possesses the blessing and the joy and the delight of the Lord, and so it sings, it glorifies the Lord who blessed them. But, but secondly, creation glorifies God because creation is doing exactly what God created it to do. That's why we think it's cool when we see an eagle soaring overhead. You know, you look up, we don't see them often, but when we see an eagle and it's soaring overhead, you know, we stop and we, we, we look at it. We're like, look, look at that thing. And it, it's, it's cool, it's amazing. Do you know why? Because God created eagles to soar. You know, when you're at the beach and you see the dolphins, you know, and they're jumping, it's just, it's just cool, it's awesome. And, and you watch it, why is it awesome? Why does it move you? Why is it beautiful? Because it's doing exactly what God created it to do. And why are we annoyed by cats? Right? Cats, obviously, are just a product of the fall, you know? So, um, sorry, I have to do it to you twice, man. Um, yeah, Avery's, Avery's a cat guy over here, uh, you know, a little pushkin um, Pushkin glorifies the Lord too, man. Um, you know, but uh, just just annoys me a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. Um, no, creation glorifies the Lord because it's doing exactly what it was created to do. So when we see and we find joy in the beauty of creation, our hearts are responding to a reflection of the beauty of God. That's why it's beautiful because God created it. Creation sings the glory of the Lord to us every single day. So I, I pray that we would have eyes and ears to see beyond creation itself to the Creator. I pray that, that, if, that we would do that. And when we do that, our hearts will be captivated by His beauty and His glory. And then we will see just how much we need Him. All right, so what, what does all this mean? The the what, the how, the why of creation. What, what does it mean that God created? A lot of things, three takeaways. Three takeaways. First, you are a creature before you are anything else. Before you are anything else, you are a creature. It simply means that you are not God. However, as a creature, as a mere creature, you have the capacity to reflect the glory of God. And humans have more capacity than any other aspect of creation to reflect God's glory because we are the ones who bear the divine image in a unique way. But we are creatures who fail to live according to the design of our creator. So whether you realize it or not, I hope you do already, I'm here to tell you that you absolutely need Jesus if you're ever going to live up to your created design. If you're ever going to live as God designed you to live, you are going to need Jesus because only Jesus is able to restore the image of God in us. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is able to give us back our capacity to glorify God so that we could function and live as God designed. Okay, second takeaway. It is good and it is right to enjoy God's creation. It's good it's good. It's more than just getting away with family when you go on a hike and it's, oh, it's really good for us. No, when you go on a hike and you marvel at creation, you are glorifying the Lord. You, you are witnessing his glory. So rejoice, rejoice, enjoy the creation that God has given us. And if, if you're a student, if you're in school, don't be afraid of science, okay? Don't, 
you know, you're, I'm a Christian. I can't, I can't do science. It's evil. It's wrong. It's, it's the enemy. It's not, okay? Don't, don't avoid the sciences. Instead, take your Christian worldview into the sciences and see and learn how God's beautiful, amazing world works. Third and finally, you are dependent on God. Your existence and the existence of everything in creation ultimately depends on God to, to not only create but to sustain you. Creation is not just good, it is limited. Creation glorifies God, but it is also tethered to God's provision. And so the good news here is that God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need your advice. He doesn't need your cooperation to make something new and good and beautiful and true of your life. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need pre-existing materials. He doesn't need anything else except for his own desire and his own power to make something new of your life, and he will do it. So you are fully dependent on God. Now, in each day of creation, God is forming and filling the earth out of nothing by the power of his word and for his glory. And it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's, it's blessed and it's at peace. And, and here at the end of all of the creative work, God rests. And as he rests, he rejoices in his work. So this last action from God will consider God rested. God rested from his creation. Now, why did God rest? Well, just a couple things in the negative. We know that God did not rest because he was too tired to carry on. Like, he had more he wanted to do, but he just needed to take a break. He's all-powerful. He, he has no need to, to rest. And we know that his, his rest does not mean that he has stopped working in the world. No, he, he continues to work even to this day. So what does it mean that God rested? Well, first, God's rest means that creation is complete and, and that God was satisfied in it. The world was as he intended it to be, and creation is, is at rest in God. Everything is as it should be. But, but even more than that, and this is, this is where, it, where it connects to us, God's rest is, is so much more than an experience that he has. God's rest is something that he invites us into. It's ultimate reality, and it's an ultimate reality that never ends. You see, the seventh day, if you, if you look at Genesis 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. What we don't find here in this passage that we find on every other day of creation, we don't find an end to the day. The seventh day never ends. There, there is no phrase, and there was evening and morning the seventh day. This is a different kind of day, and this is a different kind of rest. God rested from his work. He sits on his throne with full authority, with full contentment in himself. God experiences here the reality that our hearts are longing for. Just like Augustine said so many years ago, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. The rest of God is this existence without sin or struggle or suffering or death. The rest of God is paradise. It is perfection. It is pleasure. 
And we see God's rest in the Garden of Eden. We get glimmers of it in the promised land. And one day we will experience it in the new heavens and the new earth. Now the amazing news about God's rest is that he invites us to join him in it. God creates everything and then he rests and then he welcomes his people into his rest. How can we enter it? We enter through faith in Jesus. The people of Israel, they longed to join God in his rest. They had all these patterns. They had, they had the Sabbath day. They had festivals. They had the year of Jubilee. They had all of these things that helped remind them that God is at rest and he wants them to be at rest with him. But they never experienced it. it, it they never walked into the rest of God. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he has the audacity to say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The author of Hebrews tells us, for we who have believed enter his rest. His works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So then, the writer tells us, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We can enjoy the rest of God not by trying to be super righteous, super holy, or being good enough. We can enjoy the rest of God by coming to Jesus. Jesus is the one through his life, death, and resurrection who recovered what was lost, who restored what was broken, and it is Jesus himself who bears the curse of sin and death so that we would be set free from them. God is so good to us. We have what we're longing for awaiting us one day. If you are weary, if you feel like you're not enough, if you feel like you just can't find the satisfaction your heart is longing for, you're, you're longing for rest. God rested on the seventh day, and that day has never ended. Through Jesus, you can find that rest, and you will have it one day. But the good news is, we can experience it even now. The more we follow Jesus, the closer we draw near to Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart, we will find more and more contentment and satisfaction that the world simply doesn't have the capacity to offer us no matter how much it promises. We will see that not only is the world not our home, but we will see that we don't ultimately need what the world has to offer. We can lose. We can miss out. We can have our hopes and dreams dashed. We can handle disappointments. We can still be okay even when things don't work out. So I pray that we would fo follow Jesus nearer and nearer in order to experience just a taste of what happened in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and then sat down and rested. Would you once again come to Jesus this morning and join him in his eternal rest and stop striving for it in this world? God worked and then he rested. Come join him. Let me pray for you. Father.